I hate to tell you this, but last night, some snow and ice fell off my roof of my new home, and it landed on my car. Again. Again. (laughs) It shattered the windshield. It took out the back window, and it dented the roof. And yes, if you're thinking, this sounds familiar, it is. Because two years ago, refrigerator-sized blocks of ice slid off the roof, and it landed on our outback, totaling it. And then a couple years before that, smaller blocks of ice fell off the roof, and it took out the same car's windshield. Uh, We're talking five years and three shattered vehicles. (laughs) It's not a good track record. Last night, Megan texted the former tenants of our home, 139 North Prospect, and they asked if this was a thing, if their cars had ever been wrecked by falling ice. And I I think it's kind of to our dismay, the answer was no. This is not a thing. They had lived there for six years, and this has never happened to them. We have lived in this house for six months. The insurance company calls this stuff an act of God, and I know what they mean by that. It means that it's not my fault. It's that stuff happens. An act of God. If God didn't cause it, he also didn't stop it. So at least as far as the insurance company is concerned, uh, we know who they want to blame. It's an act of God. As I was cleaning out my car last night and literally picking pieces of broken glass out of the palm of my hand, I was running all of these memories through my mind, the shattered vehicles on Green Street, this new information right, from the Carr family, cutting and splicing all of this information into a story that I'm telling you tonight. Life is complex, and the world uh, can be chaotic at times. And when life takes us by surprise, when ice falls off our roofs and smashes our cars to smithereens, when a boyfriend or a girlfriend breaks up with us, with you, uh, when a global pandemic comes out of nowhere and it changes every aspect of our lives, we can't help but think or we can't help but look for some meaning in all of this madness, for some plot lines, for some thread that's going to weave everything together and bring some coherence to our chaos. Now, there are some various explanations as to why we do this, as to why we see the world in story and tell stories. Some evolutionary scientists posit that it's because of natural selection, that the better the storyteller you are, the more likely you are to find a mate and pass on your genes and so on. Other people think that it's part and parcel of what it means to be made in the image of God, right? A God who speaks, who tells them who uh, himself tells stories, who sets history into motion and brings order out of chaos. Maybe all of our storytelling is connected to his story and storytelling. That we do it, that we tell stories and that we make sense of our world through stories is beyond dispute. But what is disputed and what people really are questioning is whether or not there is a greater story of which my life story and your life story is a part. Like when we tell our life stories, are we merely making something out of nothing? Or is there something, even someone out there, is there a greater story of which my life story, our life stories are a part? Now for most of my life now, I've been paying close uh, close attention to the stories our culture tells us. These are stories about who we are and where we come from and where we are going. These are big stories, what some people call meta-narratives. 
And there are two that are very popular and predominant in the West, uh, in, the, in America, on this college campus. One of these stories is incredibly pessimistic. One of them is incredibly optimistic. But what both of these stories have in common is that both assume that God doesn't exist or he is irrelevant at best. What's more, both of these stories are incredibly pervasive, which is to say they're in the air that you breathe. And they are, or they constitute in some ways, the water that you swim in every single day. Okay, according to the pessimistic story, everything is random. It is chaos through and through. You and I are nothing but a random collocation of atoms. There is no point to your existence. There is no design. Now, true, everyone has a life story, right, with a beginning, middle, and an end. But the meaning of your story, the meaning of all these stories, is ultimately meaningless. It's purely subjective. Our lives are like words written on a foggy window. They all fade into nothingness. Now, some of the best storytellers of this pessimistic story are the Coen brothers. If you've ever watched No Country for Old Men or Fargo or The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, you are imbibing this story hardcore. I mean, you know, undistilled. You see it, too, in movies like The Revenant. Life is harsh, it's brutal, it's unforgiving, and we are no different, right? We are all savages. It's a pessimistic story, and it's pervasive. The optimistic story takes off from the same point, but it lands in a different destination, right? Takes off from the same airport, lands different destination. According to the optimistic story, humanity as a whole is progressing. It's advancing through science and technology and education. And without any help from or reference to God, we can engineer a perfect society. We can make a utopia. <laughs> Let's do it, right? This story has its roots in the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and humanist philosophy. It is the philosophy in Star Trek. It's the animating force behind so much of technology coming out of Silicon Valley. It's a story. It's a myth that is told and retold inside the halls of our campus, right? As I said, these stories are powerful and they are pervasive. And they really are the currents that you and I swim in and swim against. I think of them like the blue pill or the red pill. Which one do you want? What is your pick? Maybe you're thinking, do I even have to choose? Are these my only choices? Well, tonight Jesus shows us and John shows us that there is another option. There's another story. Look at verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. First, there's someone on a throne. This is an important detail. Sarah Jane touched on it last week. It is not chaos through and through. There's someone on a throne. The Alpha and Omega, the A to Z, the beginning and the end. Right? There's a person. And there's a plan. There's a plan. A plan to make everything wrong right again. A plan that is uh, encompassed on this scroll. The scroll ultimately, see, revealing where history is heading. 
Verse 1 shows us in just the very first verse, it is not all random. It is not all up to chance. And it's also, as you'll see, not in yours or my power to bring sort of the story to completion. Okay, in this vision of Revelation 5, Jesus challenges, he critiques, and he ultimately collapses. He demolishes the stories that I've just referenced, the ones that you and I hear and, and sort of indwell every single day. And he sets before us the one true story that your life and my life and all of our lives are ultimately a part of. The very first thing that Jesus and John want us to see in this picture of Revelation 5 is a scroll. It's the very first thing that they want you to see. Verse 1, again, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. If you were to close your eyes and just listen to this passage being read, which is how it was first experienced in the churches, you will have heard this word scroll seven more times, right, in the course of this passage. The scroll, 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 seven more times. I mean, can you hear it? Can you see it? That's the effect of it. John, Jesus, they want you to see it. There's a plan. Now that the scroll has your attention, I want you to picture a broken down house. The roof of this house has caved in. Some of the walls have fallen down. People have snuck in and they've pilfered some copper, uh, some copper pipes. You get the gist. It's a broken down house. The scroll is the blueprints for how to fix this mess of a house. You've ever seen blueprints, they're rolled up. And that's kind of what we have here. A scroll, rolled up, blueprints, how to fix this house, how to get it back in order. From God's perspective, the scroll is God's plan, his blueprints to make everything wrong right again, to reestablish his kingdom here on earth. No more COVID. No more wars. No more racism. But also no more sin or selfishness or idolatry. I mean, it's all contained here in the scroll. Now, by necessity, going from a broken down house to this newly remodeled home is going to mean getting rid of some things. You got to get rid of the termites and the floorboards and the wet and moldy sheetrock and the squirrel nest and the attic. But not only do you have to remove some things, there's a lot of things that just need to be put back together again, put back in place. Pipes that have broken, they need to be reconnected. Walls that have fallen down, they need to be put back up again, right? Again, you get the idea. All of that is contained here in these plans. Here's the problem. And this is the reason why John weeps. No one on earth is able to execute this plan. Look at verses 2 and 4. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Translation, who can... Who can follow these blueprints, right? 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is one of the most important things I have to say to you tonight. There is a plan to make everything wrong right again. There is a plan to bring heaven here on earth. But it is not your plan. It's not my plan. It's not this faculty's plan. right? It is not ours. We didn't come up with it. And we cannot execute it ourselves. It's not ours. The plan to bring heaven here on earth, the plan to bring peace to your life and to this world, it is not your plan. It is not you getting more people to think like you or to act like you or to believe like you. That's not the solution. The fact that there's a scroll is a strong rebuke to anyone who says history is unscripted, that it's all chaotic. But the fact that the scroll is sealed is a strong rebuke to anyone who says that we can build God's kingdom without God, that we can make a utopia without him, that we can make heaven here on earth without any reference to him. It's a popular notion. The story that we are progressively getting better and better and that with more education, better technology, better policies, better politics, we can create heaven here on earth is a myth. It's a lie. And it's a lie I'm surprised still has so much traction these days given the horrors of the 20th century. What does the height, like the apex of human civilization look like? It looks like hundreds of millions of people being killed in two world wars. It looks like highly educated, highly sophisticated people, right? The people who gave us the printing press and Bach and Beethoven killing Jews in a gas chamber. And this is not just a problem on the far right. When highly educated, technologically sophisticated people implement not just their far right ideologies, but their far left ideologies, you get the gulags in Siberia, you get the killing fields in Cambodia, you get Mao's great leap forward which led to the deaths of up to 45 million people. It's the worst mass mass murder ever recorded. Recent human history totally annihilates the myth of human progress. And so does Netflix uh, show Black Mirror, if you've ever watched it. I dare you, it's terrifying. (laughs) Right? So does Black Mirror. So does the proliferation of pornography and hate speech and conspiracy theories on the Internet. Right? This, this tool that was going to save the world, right? it's not saving the world. <laughs> the secular humanist story that we are progressing as a species, that we have the power to create a better world by ourselves, is a lie. It's a myth. There is a plan. To bring heaven here on earth. There is a plan to make everything wrong, right? It's just not us. You get it? This causes John to weep. 
And I get it. It's this is an unsettling. This is upsetting and unsettling to people who know how to make things happen, right? People who are used to getting things done. People who, um, well, gosh, if if it's not us, where where what are we going to hope in? Where's 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 the help going to come from, if not from us, right? John weeps, but he doesn't weep for too long because. There is a way forward. Uh, There is a solution. It's just that God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are much better and mysterious in some ways than ours. Why don't you look at verses 5 and 6 with me. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John stops weeping when he hears there is actually someone who can bring history towards its right and final conclusion. Behold, meaning be present, pay close attention. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Now this imagery, lion of Judah, root of David, is very much messianic imagery. It's sort of code for the Messiah. But when we hear lion of Judah, what, what just that connotes is power and might, right? You hear a lion, you think teeth and claws. You think musclage, right, with a mane. Mufasa, Simba, or Aslan. Behold, the lion. But this is where things get really interesting. Verse 6 is the dramatic center of the passage. And it really is the theological center of this entire book, this entire revelation. John is told to look at a lion. But when he turns around, what he sees is a lamb. And not just any lamb. He sees a wee little lamb that was slain. Now, there are two Greek words that get translated lamb in the New Testament. The first word is omnos. And omnos is a big adult sheep. I picture a ram with huge horns. The other word is arnion. And Arnion is a little lamb, like Mary had a little lamb, right? That is what John sees. He sees an Arnion, a cute little Arnion, a little lamb whose fleece is not white as snow, but is matted and caked in blood, its throat having been slit. The Lion of Judah is a lamb that was slain. Now, just because the lamb was slain, slaughtered, doesn't mean it's a dummy or a wimp. The lamb has seven horns and it has seven eyes. Now, remember, this is very much a symbolic vision and not a literal one. Right? Horns mean power. Eyes connote wisdom. Seven is a number of completeness or wholeness. The fact that it's seven hordes, seven eyes, means that this lamb is preeminently wise 
and immensely powerful. So it's not a dummy. It's not a wimp. The lamb knows what he is doing. The lamb knows what the strongest force in the world, in the cosmos, is. And it is not a bomb. It's not a gun. It's not a sword. It's love. It's sacrificial love. It's the deep magic that Aslan, that great lion in the Chronicles of Narnia, talks about at the stone table with, uh, with Susan and Lucy. If you ever read that book or seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. There's a power that the white witch knows. It's our power. It's violence and deception and fear and manipulation. It's the way of the world. But there's a deeper magic. There's a power that's more powerful than that. And it's the love. Love that's willing to give up its life even for an enemy. It's Aslan dying to release Edmund from the clutches of the white witch. It's Jesus dying for you and for me on the cross. On the cross, Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life, willfully took the punishment that our sins deserve, and he bore them in our stead. On the cross, Jesus experienced God-forsakenness so you and I don't have to. He experienced hell so you and I don't have to. Sorry, my mask keeps falling down. And he did this for us. Not when we were on fire for Jesus and highlighting our Bibles and having our quiet times and going to church. He did this for us when we were his enemies. When our backs were turned on him. When we could care less about who he is and what he has done. That's when Christ died for us. That's when he took the weight of our sins upon his shoulders. That's when he paid our penalty in full on the cross. As is written, Christ crucified the power and wisdom of God. Y'all, it is so important that you understand this. Jesus did not do this for you because you were good. He did this because he is good. He did not do this because you are good. He did this to make you good. To change you. See, when the significance of what Jesus did for you on the cross settles in, it will change you. When it settles in, you will find yourself forgiving other people because you understand, I've been forgiven. You will find yourself loving, hard to love people because... Jesus loves and loves you, or loved and loves you, a hard-to-love person. You will find yourself doing jobs that nobody else wants to do, and not begrudgingly, but joyfully, because this is what Jesus did for you. God did not have to do this. He did not have to save you, but he wanted to. And God did not have to die. But he chose to. And he did all of this for you and for me 
and for us, really for the sake of the world. This is the plan. You see, it's not your plan or mine. It's far greater and far more mysterious than the ones that you and I would have thought of. And it's not our doing. It's his doing. This is what's going to bring pre this is what is going to bring peace to your life. This is what's going to bring peace to the world. Sacrifice. And everything that comes out of it, grace and love and mercy. This is the most important moment in cosmic history. It's the most important moment in your personal history. The lion becomes a lamb. He does this to secure your freedom, your freedom from sin and its penalty, from its power, someday its presence. He does this to save your life, to buy, to buy and pave your way home. Uh, as, a, as a fellow RUF campus minister and pastor and friend, uh, his name is Richie Sessions, told me once, he says, the greatest thing that's ever happened to you has already happened to you. It's happened in the person of Jesus. It's already happened. Because of what he has done, you can experience peace with God forever. Not just with him, with his people. It, it can send shockwaves out into the world. The fact that the slaughtered lamb comes from and then stands in the very center of the throne means that if you want to understand the very center, right, the very heart of the living God, you need to take a good, long look at Jesus on the cross. If you want to know who God really is, what he's really about, what is at the center, what is at the core of his personality and his existence, look at the lamb who stands at the center of the throne, and you've got your picture. It's Jesus the lion becoming a lamb for you. That's the heart of God. That is the very heart of God. The heart of the Almighty is the heart of the lion lamb who freely gives his life to pardon us and who freely receives any who come to him in repentance. You always sing these words. He is good. He is good. He is so good. And he is. This is it. This is who he is. The fact that he is slain means that God is a God who suffers. Now, when I see my daughter in pain, my heart breaks. But how much more does God's heart break for us when he sees the pain that we're in? Like, I'm an okay dad. I would say I'm a mediocre dad. But he is a good, good father. If I'm moved by suffering for my daughter, how much more is he moved by ours? He is. He's quite literally moved. His, our suffering moves him to planet Earth. It moves him out of the throne room in heaven and into the slums of planet Earth. It moves him into places of unspeakable pain and misery. Uh, and misery, and ultimately it moves him onto a cross, then into a tomb and back out the other side. God is not just a lion. He is a lion lamb who suffers with us and for us. He isn't above it or beyond it. He willingly enters in so that you and I have a hope and a future where suffering is no more. And here too, the fact that the lamb is on the throne right now and not just ascending to it, but is on it right now, means that God's war against the forces of darkness and chaos and evil and suffering has been won. Victory is assured. 
Now, yes, there are many battles left to be fought, as sure as there were many battles left to be fought between D-Day and VE Day. But the war has been won. We do know the outcome. We know where history is going. And this ought to give you courage and joy and hope in the midst of your present sorrows. Y'all, we started tonight with a story. Some ice falling off my roof and destroying my car. A story that I hoped would at least get us thinking about our search for meaning. Why did this happen to me? Why does this keep happening to me? Right? We might start by asking, what is the meaning of this or that? But as soon as you start asking those kinds of questions, they metastasize and they grow. It's not just, what is the meaning of three cars being devastated by falling ice? You're like, what is the meaning of this? But what's the meaning of my life? What's the meaning of this illness or accident or Phil and Blake becomes... What's the meaning of my life? What's the meaning of our lives? Is there a story that makes sense of any of it, of all of it? A greater story of which our individual life story is a part. How you answer this question has real and profound implications. What you believe about the world shapes how you live in it. Who you are and what you do has a lot to do with what story you are living out. If you believe that it is all chaos and that nothing matters, you're going to YOLO. Get yours, get some, you know. Yeah, why not? If you believe that civilization is progressing, but it's only going to progress through the right education and the right technology and the right ideology, right, through my wokeness. Well, shoot, get going. Get to work. But watch out. Because your impatience with other people who do not think like you and act like you is going to turn into murderous rage when you encounter someone who doesn't agree with you or who is getting in your way or the way of progress. But what if you don't have to choose between those two options? What if there is a third way, a better way, a true story, the one that's revealed for us here in Revelation 5? History is heading somewhere. It's not all chaotic. There is a plan. But God's ways are not our ways. We might think that the solution is education or technology or power, power to enforce our ideologies. But God has a different plan. It's a lion lamb. And his life and loving sacrifice not only will bring meaning to our lives, but they will also bring history to its rightful and joyful conclusion. Please pray. Lord, um, I pray you would give us a real accurate vision as we look into the center of heaven and what we see is Jesus. We see his sacrifice on our behalf. We would see your heart for us on display. And not because we were doing good things. It's really quite the opposite. It's because we were broken and messed up and we need healing we need hope. And that's why he entered in. 
Lord, our pessimistic story of this world and our most optimistic version of the story of this world are false. It's not meaningless, but it's also not within our power to save. And so I pray we would repent of both our apathy and nihilism, and we would also repent of our pride. And I pray instead that we would humbly receive the lion lamb on our behalf. And I pray that his sacrifice would spill into our lives and overflow into the lives of others. If not in its perfection, certainly approximately begin to bring hope and healing to those lives that we encounter. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.